Amen. Please be seated. And please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 6. I have it on the insert as well, Ephesians 6. Just one quick correction from the announcements, and it's not the announcer's fault. We give them something to read, and so uh, we give them the wrong information or her the wrong information. We do have Sunday evening gathering tonight. That's at 6, so um, I hope you'll come because I've been working on a lesson for that. Um, that's on, on John chapter uh, 16, I believe we're in now, John 16 into 17, so that's tonight at 6 o'clock. Today we're in Ephesians chapter 6, and this is the last chapter of this great epistle uh, from Paul to the Ephesians first and then to us by extension. It has been an absolute celebration of this, the, the beautiful glories of God's grace to us in Christ Jesus. You cannot, uh, I guess maybe Romans unpacks it you know, in a longer fashion, but Ephesians and Colossians, well Philippians too for that matter, but they're all celebrations of the grace of God in Christ. But I think the first couple chapters of Ephesians sets up that grace in a way that the other books don't do as acutely or at least in short fashion. And then what is true in the first three chapters and then what to do as a result of who we are in Christ. It opens up with the great mystery of God's election, his choosing us for salvation. It's a celebration of what his salvation has done for us. The 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 sufficiency of Christ's work for us as believers. It illuminates our position as sons and daughters of God through Christ, that our Father in heaven loves us and will not cast us off, that we are secure in Christ. Ephesians also tells us of the gift of the Holy Spirit that's given to every believer, that we're made new creatures, and we're a new community as a result of God's work in us through His Spirit. We enjoy a unity that comes through Christ. Uh, Just a total celebration and foundation on the basis of God's sovereign grace in Christ in these opening three chapters of Ephesians. Then we get to chapter 4, 5, and 6, and it's all how we live in light of our new identity. We're not any longer in our old grave clothes uh, before we were dead in our sins, when we were dead in our sins. Now we're uh, to put on the newness of life that manifests who we are really in Christ. And instructions given to us along these lines, especially about being united together as the body of Christ, how important that is for the testimony of Jesus going out beyond these walls. So much is built up about that unity of the body. But then we get into the real specifics of our personal relationships, completely relevant stuff for sure. How we get along with each other side by side in a church. Also how husbands and wives are supposed to relate that picture of the gospel that it paints, also how children and parents relate, and even in the workplace, we have application of our identity in Christ, how we live out our identity in Christ between employers and employees. Very practical stuff that stems through these lofty truths about the grace of God in Christ. So now we come to the last section of the book where the apostle starts out by saying, finally, Now, you know when a pastor or a preacher says finally, they usually have quite a bit more to say, and that's true here as well. So we're going to take some time to go through the final section, his final exhortation. But summarizing it all, henceforward, we should, in this light, do what he says next. This is that great conclusion. Some of the most treasured verses in all of the Bible are found right here, and they're found in the context of the foundation of God's promised grace to us. The victory of Christ is what gives us the ability to follow what is given to us in this blessed passage before us. So here now, as I read God's Word, our focus today will be on just the first few verses of this section, but I'll read the whole section so we can gather its magnificence. 
starting at verse 10 of Ephesians 6. I'll read to verse 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have won the victory for us, and we praise you with all of our hearts. Not only have you secured the ultimate victory, but you have equipped us for the battle that we face until that great day of our final redemption. By the ministry of your Spirit, please give us understanding of the spiritual realities revealed in this text. We could not know the truth about this life if it were not for your word. Make us strong in you, I pray in Christ. Amen. You can imagine Paul writing Ephesians from a jail, a Roman jail. Some of that time, we know that he was chained to a Roman soldier. So when he is drawing on this metaphor of armor for the spiritual tools, the spiritual protection or preparedness that we need, it's got to be vivid for him. It's possible, imagine if you will, him chained to a Roman soldier while he's thinking up ways to describe the Christian life and the battle we're fighting. He could have been looking at someone wearing this exact outfit. He could have been so close he could smell the outfit. I mean, this is a personal relationship he had with Roman soldiers when he was in jail. But in the world he operated in, he saw them everywhere. So it's very vivid for him when he depicts this armor as a metaphor for what we are to put on for the Christian life, for the battle that we are facing. Roman soldiers had multiple necessary pieces to their uniform. Their, it was their armament, their armor, which also included their shield and their sword. These were the main part of what kept them alive. It was their lifeline, every aspect of this part of their equipment. The average Roman soldier, if he lived the whole time in his enlistment, would go about 20 years as a Roman soldier. If you live that long, many were sent off to the farther regions of the empire fighting battles nonstop. And then as you rose in rank, you would have people underneath you and you would get closer and closer to Rome. The higher ranking commanders would often be closer to Rome. And there they would retire at some point. And when they retired, um, and many mantelpieces would be their armor. Uh, In their home, in their uh, living quarters, their armor showed that they once served as uh, a Roman 
soldier, some of the most feared, some of the most respected soldiers in the world at that time. And their armor would be set up to be stared upon throughout the rest of their life as they remember back as their, their days as a Roman soldier. Now, in some cases, as a soldier rose up into the, land, uh, into the ranks of commander, it would be common for them as they were retiring or moving to another rank to give part of their armor to someone who was coming up, a protege, um, a soldier under them who was rising in rank. They would sometimes give some of their armor to those folks. Other times, if they had a son or they had a relative entering as well and they were retiring, it wouldn't be uncommon to take that armament off the shelf, that battle-hardened armament, that armor, the equipment, and give it to a new soldier, a young soldier who was coming up. Uh, to give them their helmet and their belt and their breastplate, depending on its condition. But if they had lived that long and retired with that equipment, that equipment would have been battle-proven as well as battle-hardened. They would have seen victories in it. Um, It would have proved faithful to them. They can be sure if they gave it to someone else, um, at least in the job it's uh, designed to do, it would serve that purpose and protect them. It had been tested in battle, and it had won. When we come to this passage, and Paul is describing the whole armor of God that we are to put on. Recognize that this is not brand new armor. This is armor that has been worn. This is the armor of Christ that he gives to his people. This is battle-hardened. This is proven. This is victorious armor that comes from Christ himself. It's the armor of God, so it's completely reliable. We can be sure that it will do the job it's intended to do. So that should perk us up immediately. This is not a prototype that we might wonder what will happen when a dart comes our way or when a sword comes against us. We can be sure it's God's armor and God is victorious. The Lord Jesus has won the ultimate victory. The outcome of the whole of this thing is not in question. But there's a time now between when he has gone to be in heaven, ruling from the Father's right hand until the time he comes again. It's relatively short, but for us, it's a life we live in. It's a spiritual battle in the meantime, and he gives us his armor to put on. So we do well to pay close attention to these instructions, and I don't want to go through it quickly. I want to take time to consider each piece of the armor, of the equipment, the armament that God gives us to wear in this life we live, which is a spiritual battle. You know, I said last week, referencing something different, but it still relates, that we tend to think in the here and the now that the social, the political, the economic, these are the things in our face all the time, and we think so important, and we spend lots of energy on them. Now, clearly, they are part of the life we're living. There's no question. But what I mention, and it applies here, is that in effect or in actuality, the spiritual is the most important component of our existence. They all relate. It's not You only think of the spiritual has no connection to real life. No, it's that the spiritual lies behind everything else. And the explanations for all the other things we see ultimately have spiritual roots. Um, The institutions, the structures, the people, uh, the way we think, all of this behind it lies a spiritual reality. And the scripture speaks to this on a consistent basis. The Apostle Paul is a great picture of this. He recognizes how important it is we all understand this. And that's why putting on the armor, as he describes here, could not be more important for us to gather. We've seen who we are in Christ. We've seen our old grave clothes put off because we are raised again with him, like Lazarus. The old grave clothes go off. We put on, we put off, but we put on these new features of our new identity that show we're in Christ. And now he says, put on your armor. Put on your armor. 
Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Verse 10, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Put on his armor in his strength. That's what we put on. Six pieces of armor you'll see spelled out in the text. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of gospel readiness and peace, the peace that the gospel brings wherever it's brought, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. Paul concludes this magnificent epistle of the Ephesians, to the Ephesians, this epistle about God's grace to us in Christ, with a final charge to readiness for the spiritual battle that is this life. Now let's look at the passage a bit more closely, the first few verses that will set the stage for the rest. We want to know very explicitly and clearly who our main enemy is, and then also, in connection, what the actual nature of the battle I keep mentioning is. You might say, it doesn't look like a battle. We're pretty much at peace, right? But there's a battle raging according to God's word. First, who is our enemy that is pointed out here? Our main enemy, I should say. We have multiple enemies, and they're all related to the main enemy. Verse 10, be strong in the Lord's in the strength of his might. And we see revealed our enemy in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, Paul is not shy to speak of the spirit world. He actually sees it as the prime driver of everything that we see with our eyes. Paul, in the Bible for that matter, identifies our main enemy as the person of Satan. I say the person of Satan. He's not just a a mythological figure or just uh, something that embodies a spirit of evil. No, the devil himself is a a figure, a, a figure that's described in the Bible at some length, not as much as we might like, but plenty enough to know he is a personage. He's the diabolus or the diabolical one as the word behind devil states in the Greek. Now, I, re- I, I realize from the onset when I start talking like this that whenever you identify an actual personage called the devil, um, it's difficult for the smug post-enlightenment person who's a materialist at heart, who thinks that all there really is is that which is material, which you can see. I know that it's difficult, um, and, and many of us, come, you know, we come from that enlightenment thinking, and we've probably been schooled in a certain amount of it, and it's hard for us not to be skeptical about this. But you'll notice all the interest that there is in the world at large about the occult and about spiritual realms. But yet, in our sophistication, we can't say that there's really a devil, right? I mean, that just seems too much. That's too fundy of you Bible believers. But the fact is, the world over, the history over, um, most people in all cultures acknowledge some level of spiritual reality. It's not a badge of honor to be in the skeptical camp of something that seems so obvious just in our existence, but now with the revelation of the Scripture giving us clarity about it. It reminds me, a few years ago, um, there was an interview with Antonin Scalia, the late Supreme Court Justice, and he was talking about a myriad of things in the New Yorker magazine. And in that magazine, he said at one point, and it was, they were asking him his religious beliefs and about heaven and hell, he just interrupted the interviewer to say, you know, I believe in the devil. I believe in the devil for sure. And she said, you do? This uh, interviewer named Jennifer Sr. Yes, he's a real person, Scalia said. But it's curious, in the Gospels, the devil is doing all sorts of things. He's making pigs run off cliffs, he's possessing people, and whatnot. But all that doesn't seem to happen at the same level today. And he mulled it over and he was thinking, yes, he's a real person. Near the end of the interview, some time had passed and he talked on some other topics. 
And then he goes back to her and says, you're looking at me as though I'm weird. He said, you know that most of mankind has believed in the devil for all history. Many more intelligent people than you or me have believed in the devil, Scalia said to the interviewer. Of course, he was absolutely right, not on the basis of his hunch, but on the basis of the scripture's revelation to tell us what is really the case. We are, we are introduced in the Bible to that liar, that murderer from the beginning, who is the devil. He makes an appearance throughout the scriptures. You know, there are two errors that we can fall into, and C.S. Lewis captures it perfectly in his famous screw tape letters. You remember where he depicts an older demon talking to a younger demon, his nephew, giving him the tricks of the trade and how to trip up Christians? And he says this about the existence of the devil and demons. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail all materialist or a magician with the same delight. So we have to be careful to go where the scripture goes in describing these truths, what is real, what's actually happening in the world. The apostle Peter and the other apostles, for that matter, agree with Paul. By unity of the spirit, we can understand. Peter says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You know, Satan's multiple titles in the scriptures um, reveal his multifaceted approach to attacking the church of Christ. He's called the Abaddon, or the accuser of the brethren, the adversary, the angel of the bottomless pit, Apollyon, Beelzebub, Belial, the god of this age, a murderer, the prince of demons, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of darkness, ruler of this world, the serpent of old, the wicked one, the father of lies, the angel of light, Lucifer, the devil, and of course Satan. Only Jesus has more names designated to him than the devil. Yes, he's a personage. He's real. Now it's true. He's not omnipresent like God. So it doesn't mean that the devil himself is working on you every time, but he has legions of demons. And here's the other thing about the devil. When he caused Adam to fall, that began a string of sins that you might call the vestiges of Satan. In other words, we have a sinful flesh that though redeemed, you know and I know, it still flares up from time to time. That's a bit of the, the enemy we fight called the flesh. That's a remnant of what the devil did. And then you also have the system of the world that's predominantly under the devil. The first Adam caved to the devil, and so anyone who is in the first Adam, they're in the devil. They're the children of Satan, as it says. It's harsh, but that's what it says. You're either in the second Adam, Christ, or the first Adam from the garden, and the first Adam succumbed to, to the devil. So you see the far-ranging far effects of our main enemy, the devil, although we have three enemies, the flesh and the world as well. The devil's powerful. He's wicked. He's cunning. And here's the thing. You cannot match Satan. Back in the 90s, right when I was coming out of college, there was this big fad on the part of evangelical churches. Um, normally sound evangelical churches were going into this big spiritual warfare conference mode where you would go in and you'd learn how to essentially cast off demons or out demons or, or talk to the devil, um, you know, oppose demonic activity by the words you spoke in certain formulas from the scripture. That's one of the stupidest things I've ever seen evangelicalism pull off. 
You cannot mess with the devil. You're, you're, you're a lightweight compared to the devil, and so am I. He's been around thousands of years. Look, I'm no good at chemistry, but if you give me 50 years, I could get pretty good at it. I could at least beat out most of the elementary kids here in 50 years. If you give me 100 years, I'm going to know a lot more chemistry. I'm going to do all sorts of experiments. You give me 1,000 years, you could call me a chemist. 1,000 years. How about 2,000, 3,000, 4,000? All those years you're accumulating with a supreme intellect. You think you can mess with the devil? No, you can't. Don't talk to the devil. You put on the full armor of Christ. Christ is who will deal with the devil. Nothing wrong with running behind Jesus if the devil's there. And that's what you should do. Because we're not messing with a lightweight here. This is, this is heavy, and so are his legions. Put on the whole armor of God, verse 11. You may be, so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. It doesn't say go run headlong into the devil. It says the devil's going to come after you. Or your flesh will come after you. The world will come after you. Put on the full armor so you can handle it when it comes at you. So that you can stand in the face of it. Don't run into it with your head down. You're not a running back trying to make five yards. You're there to stand firm. And you can only stand firm with God's strength and with his armor. That's the message Paul's giving to his beloved Ephesians and to us. And notice what it describes in relationship to the devil. So that you could stand against the schemes of the devil. This means the strategies of the devil. They're developed. They have grown. The tactics of the devil. The methodology of the devil. The wiles of the devil. No match for him. Recognize who our main enemy is. James says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Go to God. In going to God, is, is this, you're resisting the devil. You're turning from the devil and what he would say or what his values would be to God, and he will flee from you. If you're in God, he'll flee from you. So, yes, there's some element of intimidation that comes when we consider the power of the devil. But that's immediately met by what we've been studying already in Ephesians. We already know who we are in Christ. It's just to draw us closer to Christ and more confident in him. And that's exactly what Paul wants us to do in conclusion in his exhortation here. But also, notice our main enemy is the devil, but I want you to see something about the nature of the battle that we are in. I keep saying battle, 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 and it seems so peaceful, but it's not, not like we think it is. Along with recognizing our enemy, recognizing our enemy, we need to understand the nature. Look at verse 12. It's a spiritual battle. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, the word wrestle is very personal. It's a kind of combat that involves grappling or being so close to the person. It couldn't get more personal. But that wrestling match is not with flesh and blood, which we can relate with if we think about it. But it says it's against rulers, against the rulers, against the, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. He's clearly speaking in spiritual terms. How do we know? Look at the last phrase. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Back in the beginning of Ephesians, we discovered that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessings where? In the heavenly places. He's talking about the spiritual realm, which of course it manifests into the, into the, to the realm of the physical. But our anchoring is, hap- is upheld in the spiritual realm. And that's what we have closing the book now. That we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our main issue is not with people. It's not the outward issues that we see in our face. Yes, they are fueled by the spiritual, but recognize it's something else lies behind it. That's what Paul wants Christians to know. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers. There's a a hierarchy of some sort. It doesn't spell it out completely. But there's some organized, disciplined approach to attacking the church, attacking the people of God that works behind the scenes. 
Now we know this is true because of the revelation we have. We could not surmise this if it weren't for this help that we receive. The cosmic powers over this present darkness. Darkness is the description given to the existence we have in this fallen world. Absolutely, Christians bring light into the darkness. But on the whole, the world system is a dark one. And you can understand the danger of the dark. In the dark is where predators do their most work. It's not been too long that in the state of Kansas it's been legal to hunt coyotes at night. Before, for the longest time, you couldn't hunt them at night. Now, you might say, oh, they're just nice little doggies. Well, you don't know coyotes too well if you think that, Uh, especially as you get closer to the suburbs. But the law said you couldn't hunt them at night. Well, take it from someone who's tried to hunt coyotes many times. It takes a lot to sucker one of those things in in daylight. It can be done, but it's laborious, and there's a lot more of them. But as soon as they allowed it at night with night vision, you see what kind of an animal the coyote is. He, he is lurking and prowling everywhere at night, does all his work at night. And it's a scary thing to put on night vision and see not just a couple of them, like six, seven, eight of them marauding all over a countryside looking for rabbits, your pets, or whatever else. Predators do their work in the dark, and we live in this present darkness. It's where the devil roams. It's where the demons lurk. It's where they move. Now, as Christians, we need not fear this in any ultimate sense. We just need to recognize it and do, as Paul says, to put on the full armor of God that's at our disposal. And we're ready for it, having studied this book. We know what this means now. This isn't, we did all this stuff, now it's all up to you. No, in the strength of the Lord, the armor that Christ bore on you. That's what you do. And you can stand. Earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, the description of this spiritual reality, of this battle we're fighting, was, was given to us already. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Once walked doing what? Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now work, at work in the sons of disobedience. He's describing the spiritual battle that resides in all the turmoil. Why do the nations rage? They rage because they don't know Christ. They do not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The world, the flesh, and the devil, all mentioned in Ephesians 2 in the first three verses. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake, our battle is spiritual and it's massive. It's bigger than you can imagine. If you could observe what actually happens, if you will, invisibly, you'd be amazed, I believe. Because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood like we think we do. It's against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers, and the spiritual forces. The army against us is not small, it's vast. If you think it's meager, you have to think again. It's formidable, very formidable. In fact, John Milton, who wrote the classic Paradise Lost, he's famous for saying, millions of unseen creatures walk the earth unseen both when we wake and when we sleep trying to describe for you, I think, the surprise that you would have if you realized how much is at work in the spirit world regarding the church, is opposition to the church. There's a scene in The Lord of the Rings, and in the book is excellent, but it's one of those rare times where when you see Peter Jackson's depiction of it, he really does a great job of catching, uh, capturing this kind of sentiment. And it happens when You remember uh, Wormtongue, who's Grima, he was at Rohan, and he had been working on Theoden to try to keep him under a spell until he died. Eventually, he wanted to be the king of Rohan. That was the idea, and Mary is his daughter-in-law. But as it 
turned out the Fellowship of the Ring showed up and freed Theoden from his dark curse. Well, Grima immediately flees to Saruman, who's you know, an upper-ranking evil guy who is in this tower, and he's also trying to uh, figure out a way to squelch the good, you know, good versus evil. And of course, the ultimate dark lord is Sauron. Both of these guys are under Sauron. They're doing his bidding. But how will they squash good if the Fellowship of the Ring is so strong and doing what it's doing? And they have the King of Gondor there who's going to take the throne eventually. And it all looks bad for the evil side. So Grima goes to Saruman and says, I don't think this is going to work. They're, they're, they're now all retreating to Helm's Deep. And historically, we've never been able to, to flush out anybody who goes to Helm's Deep. It's this incredible fortress that, this fortress that stops anything from getting in. They're safe if they go there, even if we outnumbered them. He starts telling Saruman, and he's at the top of the temple. They're in the, or at the top of the tower at Isengard. And they're just standing in there talking about this, and Saruman's listening. And listen to the interaction between the two as the scene unfolds. Saruman says, yes, but if the wall at Helm's Deep is breached, it will fall. And he starts to walk towards the balcony of the tower while Grima's still standing in the middle in this black room. Grima, who kind of follows behind him, he said, yes, but even if it's breached, it would take a number beyond reckoning, thousands to storm the keep. Saruman said, yes, tens of thousands it would take. Grima said, but my lord, there's no such force. And you get this feeling that there's just not going to be any way for them to overtake Helm's Deep. But at that moment, Saruman is now out at the balcony. Grima goes out in the balcony. And when he looks out, he sees rows and rows and rows of an enormous, uproarious army, a, a brutal-looking army, ready to a bloodthirsty army. As far as he can see, they're lined up, and they're ready to march against Helm's Deep. Grima gasps at the vast army below. A horn is sounded, announcing the appearance of Saruman, who gives them their marching orders. So whatever meager uh, opposition you think we have, it's way, way greater. It's way more vast than you can imagine. I'm not telling you to scare you or to make you think it's behind every corner. I'm telling you so that you understand the power of the armor, the power of Christ's finished work. So you go there once again. And there you will not only be safe, you'll be able to stand against it. And Paul wants us to know that as he brings this great epistle towards a close. John Stott said that we are involved in a superhuman battle in which conventional tactics will avail nothing. Not told to charge the enemy, that'd be foolish. We are called instead to go to the strength of our matchless advocate. Look at verse 10. You can see it in 11, 10 and 11, and verse 13. Verse 10, finally, so what do we do in light of this reality? Be strong in the Lord. Who are you in the Lord? Who are you in Christ? Be strong there. And in the strength of his might, the same might that raised Jesus from the dead, is your advocate now. Be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor. Not any armor. The full armor of God. He gives you exactly what you need to stand, to persevere. It says in verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God. No mistaking what this armor is. This armor is God's armor. And we are to put it on, take it up. And in Christ we can. And you will then be able to withstand on the evil day. You know, Martin Luther was very aware of the spiritual battle around us. He got made fun of uh, some, from time to time. Um, by his, from his adversaries for the way he knew the devil was personal. 
even threw an ink blot at the wall at one time to hit the devil when he was writing something. They was writing a, where he's translating the scriptures and he threw the ink blot against it and left an ink mark that's still on the wall some 500 years later. He was very aware though, more importantly, of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ as protection against the devil. So when he wrote A Mighty Fortress, you will better appreciate what he is saying. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, the protectiveness of God. Our helper, he, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power, they're great. Armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. He is a correct theology of the devil. But he says in verse 2, did we in our own strength confide if we trusted in ourselves? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. You ask who he may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth his name, from age to age the same. He must win the battle for us. He must win the battle for us. In the third verse, it continues. And though this world is dealt with devils filled, they should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And that word is the eternal word. And that word is Christ. What does God give us? As provisions. This is the section that I will take some weeks to go through, but look there at verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. But wait a minute, if the devil's defeated, why do we got to get all ready for this? And how is he going to come after us? Listen, the devil is defeated, but it's like this. It's the head of the dragon has been chopped off by the work of Christ. And for the meantime, the tail, the, the reflexes of that crushing are working itself out in that tail as it whips all around in his death throes. In his death throes, though, his tail can, can, knock, out all, can knock out nations. We're in that, he's gonna, he will be ultimately defeated at the final return of Jesus. But in the meantime, there is armor to be taken up. There are blows that can come our way. And that's what Paul warns us of. And you notice the goal for the battle mentioned at the, in verse 18, and I'll take you back to 13 as well. But in verse 18, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. That's the end goal, by the way, is to stand, to persevere. Persevere in what? Persevere in your faith and trust in Christ. Whatever may come against you, whatever may happen in our mortal bodies, that we stay fast in our rest in Christ. We don't suddenly trust in ourselves and our own methods to get out of it, but we recognize we're protected in God. We can stand with his armor. We can withstand what comes our way and keep alert with all perseverance. That's the goal for the battle, to remain standing when we are assailed. Not if we're assailed, when we're assailed. To persevere in the faith. Verse 13, take up the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm.
don't forget in other portions of the New Testament, we have compounding encouragement. Paul wrote to the Philippians, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The battle won by Christ. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. You know, uh, back in the beginning of the sermon series, we were outside, I remember pretty vividly, uh, just uh, the, the warm days and just talking about this kind of really resonated with me. I described our salvation in light of the way Lazarus was raised physically, that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We wore dirty, stinky grave clothes. Hopefully you remember that depiction. Uh, but when we were raised again, when he called us forth, um, we, first thing Jesus does is says, get that grave clothes, get that clothes off, unwrap him. Well, it didn't leave him there standing naked. He then put clothes on. In the clothes, uh, metaphorically, uh, uh, the new identifying features. He was a dead person, so he wore rotting clothes. He's not a dead person, so he wears living clothes. Clothes that manifest the traits that Jesus gives us, that mirror him. Now we're coming to a passage where it's saying, you're standing there in Christ. You're in Christ in his work. You're in union with him. Now put on his armor. Put on his armor. Ian DeGuid wrote an excellent book, a short little book on the whole armor of God. And I'll close, and I mean I'll really close, with this statement from DeGuid. We wear God's armor because Jesus wore it first. In the final analysis, standing our ground simply means clinging desperately to Jesus Christ as our only hope of salvation. In that attitude of dependent trust is true victory. For all his power and wiles, Satan has no ability to snatch away those who are trusting in Christ. For they are the children of God, and their Father will not let them go. They have been entrusted by the Father into the safekeeping of the Son and are indwelt by the Spirit himself. Everything you need for your salvation has been accomplished for you by Jesus Christ. And he himself is now working in you by his Spirit to work out that salvation. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we praise you for the victory that is ours in Christ. You have not only guaranteed us ultimate redemption in Jesus, but you have given us your armor so that we might stand up in this spiritual battle that we face. And this battle we face may be only for a relatively short time, but it feels intense to us. We look forward to glory to come. Please encourage your children here gathered with these assurances from your holy word. Grow our trust in Christ, our trust in his total sufficiency for our lives and salvation. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Let's respond by singing a hymn that is written um, in light of this passage. I think you'll find it to be very parallel and relevant. Let's turn to 575. We'll stand and sing verse 1 and verse 2 of Soldiers of Christ Arise as the elders and the ushers come to prepare the table. <laughs>